game is so beautiful, you know. Come play. The page dynasty is the newest rage. Maybe you've played, maybe you've made a trade. Made list, and now these fish are all up on ya. I mean, you won three ships, they wish they had your. So, this is it. You wanna learn the game. 101 pick when it hits, you feel no pain. Praying for the fantasy championship. Hit the books, kid. Read this pamphlet called the Owner's Manual. It's automatic D dynasty. It, it's automatic owner's manual. It, it, it's automatic D dynasty. It, it's automatic. <laughs> and here are your authors C Chris Allen and A A Adam Wildey. Alright everybody and welcome back. I'm Chris Allen, the co-host of the Dynasty Owners Manual podcast and we are here with part 5 of our positional series. We've now moved on to tight ends. I'm going to bring in Adam here in just a second to recap the entire series because we've had just, I mean, quite a few, I guess, notable and just... I mean, wonderful guests that have really brought in their knowledge of the specific positions that we've been discussing over the past four shows. And, I mean, our, our final guest for the series is, I mean, it, it, he really rounds out the entire group. He, he brings the entire room together. He's been on the show a couple of times beforehand. You've seen his work on the Quant Edge. You've seen his work on, let's see, Fantasy Data NFL. You've seen him. You've seen his work. I mean, my guys on the what is it? The the Black Book with Joe Pizapia and some of the greater, uh, I guess, analysts and writers that you'll see out on it, it, within the industry. We've got Debro in with us this morning, and uh, Derek. First of all, thank you for taking the time to walk us through. I guess your understanding your, and your knowledge behind the tight end position. And how you doing, man? Doing good, guys. How y'all been? I mean, this all season is churning along. We are quickly getting towards uh, training camp and preseason. It's coming. I mean, it's it's wild, right? Because I feel like this summer has just completely blown by. Mm -hmm. uh, we're getting to the point where, I mean, we're already getting into uh, training camp speculation. We're hearing some news already. We've got the DeAndre Hopkins news that he's he uh, he's on the pup. Uh, Julian Edelman, I saw something about that this morning. Like his uh, his thumb is in a brace. Yeah, uh, somebody so was hardcore looking at that picture. Got a brace up underneath yeah. the glove, man. That was right. That was through was the like, glove Ooh. too. Computer enhanced. Yes. Like trying to like figure out like what's going on underneath that glove. So it's kind of wild. So that's where that's where we're at in the off season right now. We're, it's time to set aside the. I mean, we're here to talk about uh, dynasty, and we're here to talk about rookies and their impact within the within the league, but. Really, we're getting into how some of these players are going to impact your rosters in 2019. And so who else to bring in and talk about some of the tight ends uh, than, than Derek? And uh, Adam, I guess just before we get into the discussions about tight ends, can you walk the folks back through everything that we've done so far in order to get to this point in the series? Absolutely. Thank you all so much for listening. And you're listening to the fifth episode of the Positional Series, as Chris mentioned. So the first episode was with Matt Harmon on wide receivers. Everybody knows Matt from Reception Perception. And then we had Mark Schofield to talk quarterbacks. We had Bob Long to talk running backs. And then we had Justin Edwards to talk offensive line which is arguably the most important position in fantasy football so that was interesting to break that down and see how all the offensive lines relate to the players that we care about and uh which offensive lines are coming back strong so you're listening to episode five again and uh if you didn't listen to the other ones obviously there's no order just uh get them done 
Absolutely. And I think that you can listen to these in whatever order that you really want to. It's all about how, like, if you want to be able to supplement your understanding of each position, right? Because if you wanted to know or understand the nuances behind quarterbacking, let's sit down and, you know, talk with Mark Schofield. If you wanted to get a better idea of consistency and how that affects the running back position, then just pull up the episode with Bob Long. You can pop in and out as you please, but it really is about you as as the owner as the manager of your dynasty team trying to figure out how to better understand the parts and pieces to to your team so if you're weak at running back and you want to try and make a push and you want to try and understand how you can better leverage your understanding of the position uh, pull up that episode and then that will definitely help you and especially and of course when it comes to tight ends i mean i can't think of a more I guess, uh, I guess more nuanced position, right? Because tight ends are not just uh, receivers, even though they're a part of, I mean, their fantasy production comes through being wide receivers, but there's so much more to the position. So Derek, can you talk to us real quick about, I guess, some of the things that we don't really care about when it comes to tight ends, but it's important to the position, at least from an NFL perspective? Well, I think it, it, if you break it down, it, it it's the reason why you see and everybody talks about tight ends taking longer to develop. It's the getting down to it. It's the basement reason is because they're not only receivers. They have to learn route running, route concepts, where they're going to be on the field as far as if they were split into the slot. But these are also offensive linemen. You know, so you're, they're basically learning two positions in one. So we talk about that learning curve for tight ends. You know, looking at the second, the third years as being those breakout years for tight ends is because, I mean, hell, you're taking a guy from the college level, and depending on how he was deployed, some of these guys are converted wide receivers. Some of them were only asked to be those athletic downfield threats, like you look at Mike Gesicki last year. Everybody knew go out walking into the league, that dude could not block for shit. Didn't stop Gase from trying to make him into an inline tight end, but that's part of the reason why maybe we saw him flop but all this is to say is that the nuance the blocking the two part positions rolled into one role those two things are why you see that learning curve and see these tight ends that it's such an outlier for these guys to produce not only in year one but maybe even into year two and we don't see the breakout until possibly year three into the league yeah, so Derek, what really defines a good tight end then if, if we have to consider all of those extra aspects? I mean, it really comes down to a deployment. Like, how is a team going to use that particular position? And for dynasty or fantasy purposes, what is the team looking for out of that player? Like, I was talking about Mike Gazeki, he was poorly characterized as an inline tight end. Now that we're looking at a different era of the NFL and these tight ends are being used more as wide receivers. So a lot of these upper tier guys, like you have your Zach Ertz, Travis Kelsey, these guys are spending less than around 30% of their snaps as inline tight ends. They're primarily just big slot players. So yes, can a Travis Kelsey run block? Yes, absolutely. Is he being asked to do that as much as some other tight ends? Probably not. I mean, when I was looking into some of my research earlier in the offseason, George Kittle stands out as a guy who played inline a ton last year. Like I was talking about that 30% mark, 
dude, George Kittle was in line as a tight end 55% of the time. Hmm. And so I think that's huge for understanding what his role is, not only for the San Francisco 49ers, but just in the NFL, because no, no two tight ends are used or deployed in the same fashion. So a lot of this comes down to not only like this player's skill set, but the team's concept as to how they're going to utilize not only that player, but the position itself. And so I'm wondering, I guess from a, I guess from a full on like team building perspective, it's almost like we need to understand what the player can do on the field, but then also what the team needs the player to do once they get on the field. Because mm-hmm. if you're looking at a, a tight end that is more of, let's say, a, a move tight end, that wouldn't necessarily lend itself to a team that has a weaker offensive line, right? Because there's no way that that tight end is going to be able to block and do the things necessary in order for them to actually, I guess, produce for us, uh, at least in terms of fantasy. So we need to understand, I guess, that, that duality of the position, right? Like if, they're, if they can actually perform as a, as a blocker and a wide receiver, but also, I guess, as if the, if the NFL team that they're getting put on actually can use them the way that they're supposed to be used. I think the way that you mm-hmm. phrased the, your Gusecki comparison is perfect. I mean, because if he wasn't, I mean, if he was actually able to develop as a, I guess, as a receiver, as a move tight end as he was versus being pigeonholed into being a blocker, I think we would have seen a lot more production out of him in Miami, right? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think you hit the nail on the head there, Chris. It comes down to not only player skill set and where they are in their development, but if they're asked to play a different role on a team or a different part of a scheme and be more of that inline tight end, but it's a guy coming out. You know, take this year's rookie class. You have a TJ Hawkinson who is, I mean, everybody's seen the film clips. Everybody knows, even if you don't know much about tight ends, everybody's seen the clips of this dude just being a dominant run blocker. So can he be more of an inline tight end like a George Kittle? So on a team like the Lions that want to run the damn ball down your throat, is he a guy that's going to come off the field very often, or is he going to play a higher snap percentage even as a rookie because of said blocking ability versus, you know, if he was, say, an Evan Ingram and he was drafted by the Lions and this is going to be a very run-heavy team, if he's a guy that can't run block, if he's a guy that's better as a big slot wide receiver, is that a poor match for his skill set? Yeah, I mean, I think understanding not only the player's skill set but understanding where they fit into all of that is crucial in figuring out what their value is, not only in the NFL, but for fantasy purposes. So I wanted to quickly, I guess, pick apart a point that you had made earlier. So we were talking about, and we'll get into this a bit more, but um, you, you had mentioned George Kittle. And so you'd mentioned his, I guess, abnormally high uh, inline rate as compared to the other tight ends. So if we were looking at, I guess, the I guess the chance of repeatability, because last season, I mean, Kittle, I mean, what, did, did he wind up breaking the rookie tight end record? I wasn't sure if he wound up doing that or not. I the, he, he, broke, he broke yardage. the, uh, the yeah. NF, yeah, yardage. Yeah, for yardage. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I thought. We had right. all kinds of records so, broken last year. Oh, yeah, almost, I mean, it was just... He almost broke yeah. the record for single yards in a game, but Kyle Shanahan, yeah, quote-unquote, forgot. Him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but... So Kittle winds up, you know, he winds up breaking a record. We have Zach Ertz going off in Philadelphia. And then, of course, we've got Travis Kelsey holding it down in Kansas City. 
So we've got those big three, but now I guess the, the question that most folks are having as they're drafting for 2019 is who has that sustainability? Who has the best chance to repeat? Travis Kelsey with Patrick Mahomes, that's a lock. I mean, well, not a lock, but I guess we have the no, most you're right. it's uh, a lock. certainty. I hope so. I mean, I have enough I have enough shares of them that I hope that's the case. Uh, Zach Ertz with Dallas Goddard, I guess there's some you know there's some questions around that particular situation. We'll talk about that. But it seems like from what you're saying that if uh, San Francisco, they have, I believe, I think all five of their starters from the previous season returning on the offensive line, plus they have George Kittle, who also played in line as a blocker. It seems like Kittle has a fairly decent chance to at least, not necessarily from a yarder's perspective because he had uh, a lot of yards after the catch, but at least from a volume perspective, he should be able to match some of the targets that he had last season, no? I think that, so everybody talks about Yak not being a very sticky stat. We all hear that every single day. But I think some of this comes down to also, I, I think that George Kittle can reproduce a lot of these numbers. I think the needle is still pointing up for him. Now, is that saying, okay, he's going to break the yardage record again? No, but I think he's going to compensate. I think he's going to have more touchdowns. I actually think that he's going to play in line a similar amount, if not maybe a smidge more. And if you look at his metrics, he was actually better in line. His QBR was 96 compared to like 79 in the slot. Catch rate was better. He was more effective because if you're looking at his athletic profile, matching him up against what a safety that's going to cover him or even a linebacker as an inline tight end, dude, he could eat that up all freaking day. And from the yak perspective, a lot of that comes down to scheme. Can we not safely say that Shanahan is a good coordinator? So if we say that, you put more weapons around him. 15 of his targets, and he had a 151 QBR on the routes in the flat. Now, what I look at that is, okay, yeah, okay, you take a guy that is just a freak, like, athletic-wise, and you put him in space, which a lot of that comes down to scheme and just damn good coaching. You put better mm-hmm. weapons around him this year, healthier slot weapons, like because you got a Debo Samuel, you got a possibly healthy Trent Taylor, you have Dante mm-hmm. Pettis, all those guys are going to factor into the slot. So if Kittle was better in line, he gets maybe a few more snaps in line, and we know and we've seen that this guy can scheme him into space. Yak is not predictable and sticky year after year, but. Do I think that it's something repeatable and absolutely within the range of outcomes for George Kittle to do something similar this year? Absolutely. I think that high end line percentage that we saw last year is kind of indicative of the team situation that we saw because it shows kind of how they intended on deploying him. I don't I don't think the team knew quite what they had in George Kittle early. Um, and that in-line percentage shows how they would have liked to use George Kittle. And then I think the lack of weapons with Goodwin and Garcon injured really let Kittle highlight his athletic ability so that, you know, now that doesn't really matter because the team has seen it now. So now he becomes a focal point in the offense. And maybe they go get a wide receiver earlier uh, if George Kittle didn't break the yardage record last year. So I think the devil's advocates are saying that, you know, he had to produce like that last year. But with Jimmy Garoppolo coming back and and staying healthy, hopefully, and then add Debo Samuel, and as you mentioned, all of those guys will factor into the slot. Plus, Marquise Goodwin, when healthy, just opens the field up for everybody because he's going to take the top off the defense. 
So I think realistically, I'm probably a little too low on Kittle. I could see him easily being the tight end one next year. Um, I think so too. Absolutely, Adam. It should, should be pretty easy because of the age factor, too. Kelsey's getting over the hump, and then we'll talk mm-hmm. about Hurts here soon. But from an analytic perspective, do you have any data points that you're looking at for a tight end and shows us who who has a better chance of producing? I think that – so we're talking about the the uh, the use and the role of this position. I mean, a lot of what you look at for tight ends, you break them down – slightly similarly to wide receivers as far as looking at target share, you're looking at air yards, you're looking at where these guys are being used on the field. The But the spots that I kind of like to target also for the tight end position that you see kind of trend with these uh, breakout players or these upper echelon tight ends. And some of this goes down to size and athleticism. So not only is it like fantasy points per route, because we're talking about efficiency there and guys that if they're producing on whatever volume they're given, are when they produce on that volume, are they commanding or should they be commanding a higher volume? So fantasy points per route I like to use, and I was talking about size and athleticism. I mean, these, for the position, you're talking about guys that are 6'4", 6'5", some of them are even 6'6", towering athletic monsters down the field that are just dominating the middle parts of the field. So I'm also looking at contested catch. And with a lot of those players, so you look at those the top three of tight ends, okay? So Kittle, Ertz, Kelsey, all three of those guys are in top three to five in both contested catch and fantasy points per routes. So I'm wondering then if if you take all of that data and you wind up now you're sitting there in front of uh, in front of your draft board or in your startup league. So now let's transition taking that information into, I guess, practical application, as we like to call it here on the show. So when it comes to the tight end position, I mean, we've all we've all been through this. We all understand the fact that even with the, I guess, the first tier, it's not just, I mean, you know, it's not just Gronkowski anymore. Rest in peace. Yeah, we've got three viable top tier elite tight ends that you could choose from, and then it's essentially everybody else, right? We've, I mean, you've got the middle class, your Evan Ingrams, uh, and your uh, Hunter Henrys, and so, you know those those types of guys. But really, the drop off from the top tier to everybody else, it's it's pretty steep. So, from a strategy perspective, I mean, is there really? I mean, after you look through some of that data and you were, you were mentioning, like, you know, Kittle's inline rate and we've been talking about the fantasy route or the points per route run and things of that nature, I guess, is there any, I guess, um, logic or is there any reason for you to pay up for some of these guys? I guess it depends on the format, obviously, right? Because if it's tight end premium, that's the tie that raises all boats. I mean, so, of course, tight end position looks a lot more, I guess, uh, it looks better that way. But is there, I guess, a thought process behind you wanting to pay up for any of those three guys uh, in any league, I guess, depending on which, uh, what type of format it is? I'm usually more of a uh, late round kind of stick it. I usually go one of two routes with tight ends, and that's either going with the veteran kind of value uh, because you're either – if you pay up for that position, you're getting a, a leg up on some of your league makes in, in – some aspects in the sense of, you know, positional scarcity and things of that nature. But what you could be missing as far as top tier running backs, wide receivers, I think is more, especially in the wide receivers, because we see those, you know, the, they're more fantasy viable year after year, less injuries, all that kind of good stuff. 
Now, if you're going to pay up for the tight end position, then I think the only guy that I'm probably willing to pay up at this point for is probably George Kittle because I think he's still an ascending asset, whereas Kelsey, even if you play in the two-year window, could we see him – he's only – he's, what, 30, 31? So, I mean, he's still in that prime of his career. I think that the only two guys that – if you're going to go win now, which we all should be going, I could see paying up for Kelsey depending on where he drops. But the only guy that I'm probably willing to possibly reach for, because I still think the ceiling is we probably haven't seen it yet, both in touchdowns and, I mean, yeah, the yardage was there, but can he reproduce that this year like I'm talking about? Is probably Kittle. I'm more likely to go with the, the late-round strategy in the sense of going with a veteran guy that's going to give me middle-tier a production or going with a second year player that we just haven't seen pop yet, like a Mike Gusecki and Ian Thomas, who could be a year away from being that middle tier tight end. You can get him dirt, te- dirt cheap in drafts right now. Those are both my strategies. I can understand the pay up, but there's such a small sampling or I guess size of players that I'm willing to pay up for that. I'm probably going to miss on them in drafts because it's really just two players for me. So you talked a little bit about trying to get the next guys. That's what I try to do is if it's too expensive to try to get those guys. Um, now, you did mention the difference in, in position and how much of an advantage it gives you. It does give you a very good advantage to have a good tight end. I firmly believe that. I mean, in redraft, I stream tight end. I missed exclusively. But in Dynasty, I like to set it and forget it. So I try to find the next guy a lot, and I'll, I'll take mm-hmm. my shots. And So – Let's talk a little bit about O.J. Howard, and I'll, I'll throw David Njoku in there, too. Um, first with O.J. Howard, Bruce Arians neglects the tight end position, apparently. Um, I can't recall a tight end that I feel like shouldn't have been neglected. I think O.J. Howard might be the best tight end he's ever had to work with. Um, what do you think about O.J. Howard going forward? I absolutely love O.J. Howard, and I don't really necessarily think that because – he One, yes, we've all talked about Arians has never had great tight ends, but I don't necessarily know that when he had a decent tight end that he necessarily neglected the position in the sense that, look, if you go all the way back to when Arians was with the Steelers, they had Heath Miller. Everybody's talked about all this. But the fact mm-hmm. that the Steelers were – and they never finished higher than 18th in passing attempts in the NFL. But over that same period, Heath Miller averaged 76 targets, and I think that's healthy volume considering everything we've talked about with – Arians and his tight ends and and you look at the other places he's gone I mean Arizona they never had a tight end to speak of you know so the last time that he had somebody that was even marginally comparable to an OJ Howard Arians used him and he used him a lot and now you're looking at OJ Howard who the guy is I think he could be the best the best shot if you're going to shoot your shot then I think you need to go with OJ Howard as far as being the guy that could break out and be this year's George Kittle I mean, the guy's already shown that he could be uber-efficient all the way down the field. If you look at last year, okay, out of the 25 tight ends with 45 or more targets, O.J. Howard had the seventh highest catch rate at 70%, despite leading all tight ends in yards per target at 11.77. And so a guy that we all know that he is an uber-athlete, we all know that he can stretch the field, but he's been efficient when doing it. And like I was talking about, like when they had, when Arians had Heath Miller, who is not even close to being comparable to OJ Howard as far as from an athletic standpoint, I think that, 
I love Chris Godwin this year. Don't do not get me wrong. This is not any shade at Chris Godwin, but I think that we're underselling also the fact that OJ Howard could be the second option in this passing offense, mm-hmm. and it might not be Chris Godwin this year just because of the mismatch that he 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 proposes for uh, opposing defenses. So let's add in David Njoku then an honorable mention to Evan Ingram, but he's already popped and he's already expensive. So there's not much reason to mention him with, with David Njoku. I I've seen flashes from him and I've liked him for a long time. I own him in a lot of places because in a way to me, he has similar upside, but less likely to reach it. Uh, what do you think about David Njoku and the uh, Browns new offense? I like David Njoku a whole lot. And like I was talking about all the downfield usage of O.J. Howard, that was under Todd Munkin last year. And so now Todd Munkin taking his bag of tricks all the way to Cleveland, I think is a great thing for David Njoku, who has the athleticism to stretch the field and be used down the field just like O.J. Howard was. But the thing that I worry about with David Njoku moving forward, because GM, I mean, Dorsey already talked about it this year. He talked about him struggling as a run blocker, and David Njoku, I'm trying to pull up the numbers right now, but David Njoku was used more in line than a lot of those other tight ends we were talking about previously. Mm. And so looking at him, if he doesn't get the run blocking down, I think he's a guy that you need to worry about. If, if he doesn't solidify that part of his game this year, considering how much they used him as a run blocker last year and in line, I think that he's a guy that we could – everybody talks about Demetrius Harris going to, to die in Cleveland and getting uh, signed there. I think that if you look at uh, David Njoku and you look at Demetrius Harris, if Njoku doesn't get the run blocking down, could he lose snaps to somebody like a Demetrius Harris? I think it's definitely possible this coming season. So, yeah, looking at it, David Njoku played in line 46% of the time in a slot receiver – 40% of the time. So that tick is above what I was talking about, that 30, mid-30s mark. So I think that is a – like we're talking about fantasy production, that is a part of his game that if it doesn't develop, he might be a guy that you need to be looking to sell mid-season instead of looking in to, to buy into, much less he's got more competition for targets than somebody like an O.J. Howard. Now, what that happens for next year – if uh, you look at Landry's contract, if they decide to go another direction, or if Njoku has a breakout season this year, could he be the number two option in the passing offense behind Odell next year walking into it? If all these things fall into place, it absolutely could happen. But I think there's a little bit more worry than somebody like O.J. Howard for me. And two, That's interesting. two very capable running backs in the passing game as well. He could... the. The ceiling's sky high and the floor is bottomed out because he could easily be the second option or the fifth option. So he's going to be an interesting player this year. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, first of all, back to uh, the Bruce Arians point. So you guys need to go ahead and rethink about the uh, the tight ends that Bruce Arians has had because this Jermaine Gresham slander, I'm just, I'm not going to have it. <laughs> we, can't, we can't be doing that on this podcast, fellas. Like, I'm just not going to have it. Um, you mean you mean O.J. Howard's hobo brother? Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the man played in Cincinnati. I got to take care of my brethren. I mean, we, just, we, can't, we can't have this. We can't have this, guys. Come on now. But uh, I think the the big thing, though, that you were mentioning earlier about uh, with uh, David Njoku, and I've, I've heard this 
uh, I've heard this before, and I think it's it's, it's poignant because if you're uh, if we're not again back to the duality of the tight end position. We already understand David Njoku's athleticism and his ability as a receiver. I mean, we saw plenty of that in 2018. But if he's not able to develop as a blocker, his ability to stay on the field and his ability to get snaps is going to be like heavily reduced. I think the, the easiest comparison that I can think of when it comes to like how he's going to be deployed, it, it sounds like the Tyler Higbee-Gerald Everett uh, thing in, that they had in L.A., and while Gerald Everett, everybody was drafting Everett because he's the pass-catching, like, move tight end. That's what he's known for. But because he wasn't known for being a, a blocker, that's Tyler Higby's job. So Higby was the one that was playing in line and being able to chip real quick and run out and catch a pass, which would wind up ha- letting him fall into the end zone. When that should have been Everett. That's what everybody was hoping for. So without being able to, I guess, improve on your pass blocking chops, like this is what we might see happen in a, I don't know if, uh, while this in 2019, I think there are some concerns that the Rams will be able to keep up their offensive pace, but in terms of production, I mean, if Cleveland is even able to come close to what LA can do, uh, we're hoping to see David and Joku take a piece of that, but it might not be as much. I mean, I, I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I, I can totally see that happening with the way that you have it laid out, Derek. Well, and you saw last year was like a, a tale of two seasons for Njoku. The beginning of the year with Haley and stuff, he was used in a higher volume role. And towards the end of the year, his volume went down, but his yards per target went up and his yards per reception went up. And I think considering what he produced in the second part of the season – and um, I got a tweet out, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, um, about how that all broke down. I think that, at least as a receiver, it, it, it was some good stuff, considering that I think that you see him used in that second-half role with Monk and Moore this year as a downfield threat. Interesting, interesting. And uh, so the other, uh, we'd already touched upon it earlier with Zach Ertz, but I guess his... I guess his situational deployment now. We've got uh, we've got Zach Ertz, we've got Goddard now coming on in his second year. But then we also have the addition. Well, we have the return of Deshaun Jackson. We've got the addition of uh, JJ Arcega uh, Whiteside. So with all of, I mean, Philadelphia just has so many weapons, and it all intersects at Carson Wentz. But if we're assuming that. Uh, Zach Ertz can keep up just the massive target share and the yardage that he was able to produce in 2018. I mean, is that is that something we should be concerned about if those are our expectations for him in 2019? I think that everybody should be very concerned about Zach Ertz. I, I don't see him reproducing the massive target numbers. I think his target share will be healthy. Obviously, I think he's probably going to be in that 115 to 120 range. But I think last year you looked at it as a – I mean, it should be looked at it as a – it was a perfect storm for Zach Ertz. I mean, they had nobody to stretch the field. Everybody kept getting hurt. The ability for both the quarterback to do what they needed to do and for this for that offense to run in an efficient manner, I mean, Zach Ertz was basically all they had. They didn't have anybody to take a top off of defense. Now you have a Deshaun Jackson because last year they tried Mike Wallace, Matt Collins. Both got hurt. And so I think not only the addition of weapons, but – the types of weapons that are there now in Philly, I think is a very big concern for Zach Ertz, much less, you know, and my uh, partner in crime over at uh, triple T pod, Aton has talked about the, uh, 
the contract for Zach Ertz. And if you look at the breakdown, his contract in the next two years, Philly is showing us what they want to do with their roster, man. They went out in the draft in the last two years, and all they're doing is handcuffing all of these high-priced vets. I mean, you have Zach Ertz, you have Jeffrey, you have Jason Peters. They've handcuffed all these freaking positions, man. They got Dillard, they got Goddard, they got JJR Sega Whiteside. They got all these guys, so when it comes time, and these guys are aging, and they're saying, okay, now we need to pay uh, Carson Wentz. Now we need to pay some of these defensive players. We could do that because the aging veteran in these other skill positions, we already got your replacement, dude. He's already in here, and he's been in the system for two years. So I love what Philly is doing from a roster perspective, but as far as like looking at Zach Ertz's outlook for not only this year, but uh, you know, in Dynasty for next season and the season after that, if you're playing in that two-year, maybe three-year window, it's time to get rid of Zach Ertz all day. And I made sure to include J.J. Arcega-Whiteside in the show sheet because in college he had 14 touchdowns in just 12 games. And if you watch his film, I always argued that he was a one-trick pony, but that didn't mean that I didn't like him, um, especially in the late first. I know early in the offseason when Chris and I did our mock with the Debbie crew, uh, we took we both liked J.J. Arcega-Whiteside at 12, and that's when he was going in the second. And granted, he didn't do the combine, so a lot of people were low on him at the time. But his one trick is scoring in the red zone. The guy will just do this little half-ass fade and and box somebody out like he's getting a rebound, and there's almost nothing that the cornerback can do about it. And that worries me almost as much as the production we saw from Goddard last year because we saw Ertz be good with Trey Burton. Trey Burton came on in the end of the season, and Ertz still produced, so... I don't know that I'm necessarily too worried about that. I think that might implore more two tight end sets to use uh, Goddard. Trey, well, Trey Burton and Goddard are different players, too. Uh, if you look at Goddard, he has more size. Yeah. I think you can factor in. I mean, Trey Burton's only 6'3 versus Goddard. He's 6'5, 6'6. I think he's 6'6. Six, six. The guys. And, and that size is huge, man. Let's talk about the size and athleticism. If you look at the tight end position as a whole, the top 20 guys as far as touchdowns last year. Only two of those guys are below 6'4". You have Trey Burton and Gerald Everett. Everybody else is above the height of 6'4", and that one inch might not sound like a whole hell of a lot, but you're boxing dudes out in the red zone like you're talking about, Adam. That wingspan, that means a lot, man. I mean, some of these video clips we're going to get to later absolutely point that out. Yeah, I can definitely see them not paying. I mean, they're one of the – probably I would maybe say the – They're strapped for well, they're also probably the smartest front office, in my opinion. Uh, maybe the Colts, maybe. But you're right. They handcuffed all their vets. They're not going to have to pay them. They're they're going to get out from Alshon Jeffrey. They paid him too much money. That was a weird extension. Um, no reason to pay Ertz when he comes up. So you're absolutely right. I might want to get out from under him. I might do something. Uh, while you can still get O.J. Howard Plus is why I would probably do that. Think yep. more like um, when you were – when you were seeing that window for trading Antonio Brown for Juju. That's how I look at the the Earth situation. Maybe find your next top three and, and trade for Or you him. find somebody that's fading Kittle. You find sure. somebody that's fading Kittle yeah. and it's willing sure. to sit here and be like, all right, he's not going to reproduce what he's doing. And you're saying, all right, well, fine. Then Take give Ertz. me Kittle and a little something on top and you can have Ertz, man. I mean, this guy, 150 yeah. plus targets. He's going to do it. He's not going to redo it. And then you just walk Mm -hmm. away. You just laugh behind your teeth the whole damn time. 
Yeah. Especially if you look at their offensive situations, because if you want to compare, I mean, if you wanted to spin the narrative, I mean, there's no way that San Francisco is going to be able to put up the same level of production as Philadelphia, or at least from, you know, projecting into the 2019 season. Philadelphia looks like they're going to be, I mean, at the very least, uh, what, division contenders uh, might be might be conference contenders, depending on how the season shakes out. Oh, I mean, they're one of the top offenses in the NFC. I mean, that's definitely not the case for San Francisco, unless something wild happens, which is entirely possible because it is the NFL. I don't know. Jarek McKinnon's healthy. Oh, Anything's possible with Jarek McKinnon on the field. Don't, don't I even was waiting for the slight. I was waiting. Yeah, it had to happen. I, mean, I, I, I was going to put the time wrong, show. but I didn't know if I had time to set it. <laughs> wanted to try and get through a show without him bringing up Jarek McKinnon. Yeah, I can't, can't let that happen. I mean, we're just besmirching everybody, Chris. So, I mean, we're talking bad yeah, about just... Jermaine Gresham. We're I mean, hurting Jared McKinnon. The truthers are going to be lit real today. this morning, man. Yeah, slander is just real this morning. I, just, I can't with you, too. We have two injured guys to get to before we start getting into this film. Actually, I guess three because Jason Witten's probably so old that he's considered injured anyways. Um, probably. Let's talk about Greg Olson first because I'm listening or I'm watching the All or Nothing because somebody tweeted that he's like the the annoying brother that nobody can stand, and I <laughs> that was weird to me because he has this persona in the NFL of being like you know one of the one of the vets that's you know seen it all, and then you watch this, you're like, damn, Greg Olson is annoying as hell. But uh, does he still have value in the Panthers' offense? We know he's Cam's safety blanket, but every year with this foot, man. He's got value, but it's dude, it's waning. It's absolutely waning, and a lot of this is coming like we're talking about the injury issues and stuff. But I mean, just if you look at the last few seasons for Greg Olson, I mean, twenty thirteen to twenty sixteen, he was averaging seven seven point two targets per game. Now that drops off to five point four in twenty seventeen, and then five flat in twenty eighteen. I think that greg olson still has at least this season so you probably i mean if you're on a contending team you need to go try to get him on your team because if the foot holds up i think he's gonna give you mid to back end tight end one value just because of his red zone involvement alone i mean 20 uh 2018 seven games he played near i say near because we don't freaking know how near full health he still had six red zone targets and so I think that he still is probably going to be a guy that could garner anywhere between six to maybe if this Panthers offense is in the red zone a ton and just operating super efficiently with breakouts from DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel, then he could be anywhere in that six to nine touchdown range. So if you're a contending team, everybody's looking at Greg Olson as probably the last year. Hell, maybe he goes two years, but if you're a contending team, you can get it for pennies on the dollar for that type of production for this coming season. Yeah, and it seems like everybody wants to invest in Ian Thomas when we saw him in spurts like last season. So I think, which I think is prudent. I mean, obviously you want to try and, yeah. uh, I guess, supplement your roster with some of these younger players that are coming in. So I'm wholeheartedly behind that uh, behind that train of logic. But still, Greg Olson's there. We've seen him produce in the past, and again, the assumption that he's healthy, that the foot will hold up. I still think you can get, yeah, I, I agree with you, Derek. I mean, somewhere like tight end 10, tight end 12, somewhere in there. I think that I think that's where his value holds when currently, uh, at least from a reject perspective, I mean, he's probably in the TE 15-plus range. That's where he's being drafted right now. So I think mm-hmm. there's he, he can easily outkick that. Well, and, and the, the – 
sneaky move on your league is to go trade for Greg Olson now. Mm-hmm. And then about week three, when Greg Olson's putting up some touchdowns and stuff like that, and then everybody's like, man, I don't know if he's going to play next year or what what that looks like. If he is playing well, then you go trade for Ian Thomas and you just corner the market on both Panthers tight ends at different points. Yeah, because mm-hmm. Ian mm-hmm. Thomas won't be expensive at that point. Yep. Um, I right. think you, you got a good chance of seeing something like you saw with Jimmy Graham uh, last year or two two years ago. It, it was pretty decent. He He got the job done. But um, last guy we're going to talk about is Hunter Henry. This guy, I guess I, I don't know much about, but I've never been really on board with him. That he, he never showed it to me. So can you sell me on, on Hunter Henry after the injury? I like Hunter Henry a lot. And what I think kind of plays into some of what I look at for Hunter Henry is I'm really kind of curious right now what this whole contract situation looks like for somebody like Melvin Gordon. If you don't have Melvin Gordon in that backfield, do the Chargers go a little bit more pass-heavy this coming season? I mean, we all know that the targets are are probably there, considering Antonio Gates, Tyrell Williams. You're looking at uh, in the neighborhood of 100 targets vacated. Now, we all talk about Rivers didn't pass as much last year. I want to say it was 508 passing attempts. Uh, In the last few seasons, he's hovered more around the 570 range. So, if we don't have Melvin Gordon back there, it's an easy path to get back to that 570, 580 range as far as passing attempts. But as far as Hunter Henry, Hunter Henry himself, I think the guy could absolutely explode this year in the sense that if you look at how he's started his career, he compares on a per-game basis very, very favorably to two other upper echelon tight ends that – well, they've reached that upper echelon at various points of their career, and Zach Ertz and Greg Olson. Out of these three guys, in the first two years of their career, they've all averaged between 2.8 and 3.1 receptions per game and between 32 and 36 receiving yards per game. Hunter Henry is right smack smack dab in the middle of all of that because as much as we all love Zach Ertz, we all got to – you know, be kind of rewind for a second. Remember that only a few seasons ago, this is a guy we're talking about. Can't put put together a full upper echelon type of season. Like, okay, he was a down the stretch type of guy, but we never saw it for an entire 16 games out of him. Now, could this be the year that Hunter Henry explodes considering the volume could be there. Increased passing could be there with Melvin Gordon's situation. And we know Austin Heckler is not a guy that can coat the rock 20 times a game. I love Justin Jackson, but there's still unprovenness to that. And so does this lean for the Chargers to go more pass-heavy with Phillip Rivers and and an ascending group of weapons around him? And can, like we're talking about, you know, rising tide raise all ships? Can Hunter Henry be part of that? It definitely could for this year. I think so. And with the way that he was trying to push himself, because it seemed like for a time Henry was trying to push himself so that he could make it back for the playoffs last year, right? Yeah. So it seems like, at least from a conditioning standpoint, we shouldn't have as much of an issue, at least in terms of like lingering injuries like from the ACL tear. He should so be recovered from that this year, yeah. Yeah, he should be recovered from that. So I don't think that the general stigma that comes with ACL tears where we have to kind of wait it out to see if there are any uh, compensatory injuries and things of that nature, kind of like what Allen Robinson experienced like when he moved over to Chicago. I don't think we'll have to see that with Hunter Henry. I think it'll be easier for him to, I guess, 
integrate back into the offense. And then even if they have to switch to a Justin Jackson, Austin Eckler combination in 2019, I think with the rapport that he showed with Philip Rivers before he went down, he should be able to kind of work his way seamlessly into the offense. I, I think. Well, and I mean, that, that's volume what too. Um, the other mm-hmm. thing I wanted to kind of get in there real quickly as far as the path for Hunter Henry to be this 100, 100, 110 target type of guy. If you look at the last three years with Hunter Henry and this whole entire offense, last year the uh, the Chargers were third in target share for their running backs. You look at the two previous seasons with Hunter Henry on the field, that target share dropped off. So I think that there's a definitive path to the targets flowing back in Hunter Henry's uh, direction and for that wave to be higher than he's ever seen before. I'm hoping that's the case. I mean, it does seem like that has been the uh, that has been the piece that they've been kind of missing. Because I know that I mean, watching Antonio Gates play for as for as old as he is has been, I guess, fun to watch. But at least from a fantasy perspective, like you want to be able to see them move the chains. And Antonio Gates isn't really that guy anymore. Like he really wasn't in 2017 or 2018. So if you want somebody that. I won't want to. The comparison might be lofty, but if you want some of those guys like uh, like Ertz, Kittle, Kelsey that can get you yards after the catch, can, can actually move the chains like we'd expect them to, then yeah, I think Hunter Henry can push that mold and can like push that comparison. But it really comes back to how the team is going to function. So hopefully, the, all that contract situation with uh, Melvin Gordon gets sorted out here soon. But uh, moving on to the the film portion. So we wanted to walk through at least just a few examples of what we see what we see while we're on the field and how some of these tight ends can actually become I guess fantasy relevant because it's not just it's not just about their receiving production I and mean, of course that's what uh makes them relevant to us as dynasty owners but really they have to be I guess tactically relevant like the coaches and teams have to want to put them out there on the field for one reason or another and that comes from them being able to uh them being able to i guess block and also run and also uh, execute the place as designed so the first i mean the first one that i'm going to bring up is one of the best to ever do it uh rob gronkowski and this is taken from the super bowl and i think it was i think this was close to like the fourth quarter if i'm not mistaken and one of the seam routes that he was running uh, in order to get them into scoring position. I don't believe they scored on this on this particular play, but I guess Derek, walk us through like what you're seeing, like as uh, as Rob Gronkowski as he releases, he's running the seam route, and he just it seems like he just blows right by the the linebacker. And there's nothing they can do when you've got an accurate passer in Tom Brady and you have a receiver like Gronk that can track the ball in traffic because he's got three guys around him and he comes down with what I believe is just a a beautiful pass that puts them into scoring position. Well, you look at the size and the athleticism in this. I mean, he's constantly fighting off the the linebacker through the entire route. There's not a whole lot of, I mean, we're talking about straight line athleticism. This is just sheer physicality with Gronk right now. And if you look at that, he didn't do anything crazy. There wasn't any kind of like he didn't, you know, put a move on the guy or put like there wasn't any kind of separation with that. This is honestly just Gronk using his size and his strength to muscle the guy on what looks like a straight uh, go route. And I love this because you just don't see I'm trying to think of a better comparison to, I guess, what Gronk offered on the field in terms of both being a receiver and a, and a blocker, 
I don't think that there's too many other guys. I mean, we can talk about. Um, uh, I'm guess what is it the the former the the Atlanta tight end uh, who was also with the Chiefs before that. I'm trying to Tony Gonzalez. Uh, Tony Gonzalez. Thank you. I was gonna forget. <clears throat> like I couldn't. The name wasn't coming to me. But you think about players like that, the guys that really understood the duality of the position, such that they were able to do things like this, like where you expect them to be on the line, you expect them to be able to, you know, to perform that block. But then it's just. Once they go out to run a route, they're past you. I mean, they're they're already rolling past you, and that's when I guess you know good quarterbacks like Tom Brady are able to thread the needle and put up something like this. So it's just it's interesting to see how one you can put together. I guess their uh, understand a player's uh, receiving chops, but then it also comes down to what they can do as a blocker. So now. When we're looking at uh, when we're looking at him as a as a blocker, so real quick, can you can you walk us through? I guess some of the um, as I pull up this video, can you walk us through what Gronk was able to offer as a blocker? That's one of those things that we really didn't look into all that much because really, if he's not picking up yards, picking up touchdowns, it's not something we typically care about, right? Oh, absolutely, man. But if you look at what the Patriots were able to do, especially down the playoffs and down the stretch. And hell, in years past, I mean, everybody talks about the, I mean, there's been more speak of the Patriots as a run first team in recent seasons as Tom Brady's gotten a little bit older. But if you don't have a Gronk there, would the Patriots still be able to have done some of these things like in this clip that you're going to show that have allowed the Patriots to be that run first team and absolutely like in the playoffs, just run it down other teams throats. I don't know if you necessarily see that. Yes, their offensive line is still top five in the NFL, but like this play right here, like we're worth to see. Gronk seals the edge, and if we do not get that space for the running back to to slip around the corner right there, if he doesn't seal the edge with that linebacker and create the space between that and the safety or the corner that's coming in. The running back doesn't have the ability to even nudge off the tackle. He would have been stopped for about a one or two yard game. Then that's a pretty massive hole. I mean, we talked about some of the offensive line workings in our previous episode with Justin Edwards, but these are just, I mean, it's, it's daylight, right? I yep. mean, th- this is not the same type of traffic that uh, running backs are probably used to seeing. They're used to seeing just absolute war zone with bodies going everywhere. But I mean, what... I believe this is Gillisley that's able to run this run up behind him. I mean, you don't get uh, opportunities like this all well, the time. Well, watch as and he the- bends around the corner and creates just a little bit more separation to be able to get past the guy. That wouldn't have yeah. happened if you didn't have Gronk creating the space right there. If that had been any other type of move tight end trying to do that, that had been blown up in the backfield, or it, it, he would definitely would not have scored on that play. He's- and those are things that we're not – they're not fully appreciated about what Gronk has done for the Patriots and what we're looking at for this team, even for this season, how much they're going to miss and how they're going to have to change this offense up a little bit. Are we going to see more, you know, inside zone? Are we going to see more uh, pulled, like pull blockers to account for the fact that they don't have Gronk there to sit here and seal the edge this year? I think it's differences that, that are not going to show up in the box score per se, but it's going to be some things that the Patriots are going to have to account for with the run game. I think this might be Deion Lewis, no? It might be. I forget. I forget if he was 33 or if he was 30. I forget his number. But either way, might be right, though. Uh, Gronk has the most essential block in this, in my opinion. Uh, 
sealing the edge, as Derek mentioned, is the most important uh, block on almost any particular play that's going to run on the edge because the running back's target is going to be basically Gronk's left hip. So here, when yep, Gronk, that's Leon, by the way, when Gronk has the responsibility of sealing the edge, the reason this is important to look at <laughs> is not because we just like to watch guys block efficiently. It's because this means that he stays on the field. So the, to bring it all full circle earlier, we discussed what makes a good tight end. Well, being on the field makes a good tight end because a lot of times tight ends aren't schemed for their for their um, receptions. But however, they're open and they're they're the safety blanket. That's where the safety blanket stigma comes from. When you have a tight end that you can trust to seal the edge, like Gronk did here, like we want to think that Kittle will do going forward. That makes a big difference in fantasy because he's never going to leave the field. And part of Gronk's legacy is that he did everything. He was a Swiss Army knife for the Patriots, and that's what makes a great tight end. So if you're looking at tight ends going forward, don't just look at your Evan Ingram being a a big slot receiver because, yes, that's great for fantasy, but when it comes time to block, it's not going to be Evan Ingram just to seal the edge. That's for sure, and that means that he's not going to always be on the field. To your point too, Adam, I think that that is – that can be pivotal too because we we see how crazy and very quickly the things the NFL can change and having a tight end that has a fully rounded skill set can not only help him like you're talking about stay on the field that can make him impervious to coaching changes too and scheme changes you have a guy that's well rounded like that like a TJ Hawkinson is he going to be a guy that you're not going to sit here and have to worry about dynasty wise going forward if patricia which dear god in heaven i hope he's fired after this year if he's fired do we are are you as worried about him moving forward with an all-around skill set as opposed to somebody like like noah fant which or mike gasecki and the the jury's still out on what type of blockers how effective they can be when blocking so in dynasty purpose for dynasty purposes, those guys that possess both that ability to block but also be weapons in the pass game, it gives them this insulation that coaching changes, scheme changes, deployment that you're not as worried about as opposed to a guy like an Evan Ingram who is strictly a move tight end. And if you have a new coach that comes in and is going to establish the run and he can't block for shit, what's he going to do dynasty-wise in the next year or two if Shermer's out of there? And so I think there's a big, big difference that doesn't show up in the block and the box score. But for dynasty purposes, it can be huge in creating safety for that player moving forward. Right, and we saw something like that happen between, I think it was the 2017, well, yeah, the 2017-2018 season where it was in 2017 – when you lost Odell and it was just the Evan Ingram show for the most part. And he was able to take over most of that target share because there was nobody there. He was able to, I mean, suck up all of that volume that was vacated by having so many injuries on the team that he was able to produce like a tight end one should. But you have all these players coming back and you and he has, and he becomes a redundant asset within that offense. And sure, I get it. Eli Manning is not the person you want to be tied to when it comes to fantasy production. But the point is that once you have some of these players come back and it's not just you uh, taking up all of those targets, 
now your production drops off. And unless you're able to efficiently uh, produce fantasy points, then now that becomes an issue, at least for us as dynasty owners. So I think that that situation that you're talking about where you're not able to stay on the field and produce in other ways for the team, that's when you start to you, you need to be able to rely on your other skill sets. You need to be able to block. You need to be able to, uh, I guess, produce in other ways in order to stay on the field. That's the same thing that we saw with Jordan Reed. Now, with it uh, with Washington, it wasn't necessarily just the fact that they had some other issues going on with their wide receivers and whatnot, Kirk Cousins and all that, but it was their offensive line. Jordan Reed wound up losing snaps to Vernon Davis because he wasn't as, I mean, on top of his injuries, he wasn't as good of a blocker. Vernon Davis understood the blocking schemes better than Jordan Reed, and so that's why you saw Vernon Davis's snaps start to tick up. And so even though, and as this clip rolls, I mean, Jordan Reed is one of the best, I guess, wide receiver, wide receiver, tight end, like, you know, that combination, because you can see him able to drop his hips, move and uh, change directions quickly in order to, in order to get some of the, in order to get touchdowns. But is that all the value that we need out of tight ends? And from our conversation so far this morning, that can't be the case. They need to be able to produce in other ways, right? Oh, absolutely. And even if you look at this clip right here, I mean, some of, you can also see, I don't know when, what year this clip is from, but uh, 2016 or no, 2017. Take that back. And I, I'd be willing to put money on that you don't see Jordan Reed still able to separate like this now after all these injuries and stuff. How he's able to plant his foot and separate to the catch point. Injuries have probably robbed him of that ability, um, at least to this degree. But like you're talking about, Chris, there has to be more to these players' games to be able to be, I guess, impervious to getting schemed out, to to losing snaps for their teams. And that's a huge reason why we're talking about the Eagles earlier. I love Dallas Goddard. I'd be trying to get him on every freaking dynasty team right now that you could possibly do because he can do what Jordan Reed is doing here. He could separate, but he is also an amazing blocker. And the, the needle is pointly firmly up. I mean, I love what Jordan Reed does here because for a guy that's, I mean, I was talking about size before, he's been able to win on his athleticism in years past whenever he has been somewhat healthy. And I know here's all the injury jokes, but for a guy that's only 6'2, mm-hmm. that's how he's been able to be the red zone weapon at times. And he had what one year we had 11 touchdowns. But mm-hmm. as the athleticism has waned, where have the touchdowns been? Poof, they've gone away. We don't see that now. I think he had, what, two last year? And so, yeah. I mean, he doesn't have the size to fall back on, like we're talking about with uh, different players like Greg Olson we're about to watch. He doesn't have the size that he can rely upon to keep his ability in the red zone and have that high touchdown floor. Because I promise you, you look at a clip from, of him in 2018, this type of move and separation, I promise you he won't be able to sit there and do yeah, not a lot of tight ends are running whip routes like this. I got in a pretty much a clip-for-clip clip battle with somebody on Twitter because I said Jordan Reed <laughs> was, the, was the best route-running tight end in the NFL. And yeah, He was amazing, man. The, the injuries, mm-hmm. it's it's been a damn shame, obviously. So like, unfortunate. Considering yeah, what he order. could have been and what his career oh, arc would have looked like if not concussions, not foot, not every single just myriad of injury – 
this guy could have i mean he he could have been Mm -hmm. really really special and and a guy that we were talking about like if he would have had the longevity like the hall of fame type talent yeah oh absolutely i completely agree i i will admit that i did not realize how good of a route runner travis kelsey was at the time uh, mm-hmm. And that's that was the defense. So he said, "No, Jordan Reed's probably second to Travis Kelsey." I said, "You don't see tight ends running whip routes like Jordan Reed." And then he found a clip of Travis Kelsey running a similar route, and I was like, "Wow, I did not see that in Travis Kelsey's repertoire." But it, Jordan Reed is an example of a tight end who he's not the worst blocker in the world. I will admit, but um, he is the type of guy that would be. Um, immune to coaching changes because you came in and you could not take this guy off the field because he was our best wide receiver for the longest time. And now he, he did play a a good season last year. And I think you're completely right, Derek, because he played him. I think he played 15 of the 16 games, which is unheard of. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. And the volume was there, but he he didn't do anything with it. And it's just the injuries have, have torn him apart. Yeah, yeah, because this was the Thanksgiving game against Dallas in 2017 where he wound up uh, with the AC joint separation. Mm-hmm. That's when that one was. And uh, I remember watching that game uh, because I had him on a team, and once he went down in the first half, I was like, oh, well, that's the end of my week right there. I'm smoked. <laughs> and then he comes back out, and he, what, he had, I think he had like 80 yards and two touchdowns or something like that. I think that was the first of the two. And, uh, I mean, it... He's been fun to watch because he's electric when he's when he's on the mm-hmm. field, but I mean, unless he's, I mean, especially if he's not punching people in the helmet, yep. I, I think that he's been one of those guys that that separates himself as a as a wide receiver, as a route runner, He'd be able to create separation. But like you guys have been saying, the injuries, the concussions. I mean, I know a lot of folks have been saying that for a while that I mean, he only has at best maybe one to two years left in the league because he's had five concussions. I think got to be a lot. It's like every time he gets off of a body injury, he's got to supplement a, co- a concussion in between. It's so unfortunate. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, while we're, while we talk about what a, uh, what we expect from a tight end in terms of what they can bring to the field. I mean, Jordan Reed has that specific skill set, like very similar to, very similar to Evan Ingram in terms of what he can do as a receiver, but it's just that, Unless you're able to, I guess, uh, continue to improve as a blocker and take on the entire tight end position, I mean, there are you're going to see some of that production start to tail off. And I'm hoping that, especially in the case of Evan Ingram and like we talked about David and Joker earlier, hopefully those things start to improve so that we don't have to worry about what we saw with Jordan Reed happen for some of those assets. Those those assets that we can see and we can tell ourselves a story about how they can ascend into that top tier of tight ends. And then with the final example, I mean, we were talking about Greg Olson earlier in that he is that safety blanket. I mean, he, for Cam Newton, I mean, he's that guy, like if they're on together, I mean, that is just, he locks on to him because in this, I mean, in this clip from their, uh, from their game against the Bucks, it looks like there are at least three to four guys around Olson, but Cam still whips it in there. I have no idea why he chose him to throw it to, but he still whipped it in there and he got it to Olsen. I have no idea how. But I guess talk to us, uh, talk to us, Derek, about like as Olsen's value that what he brings to the field and also, I mean, and how he can try and maybe stabilize Cam's value in 2019. Well, I think that if you're looking at this clip right here, it's a perfect example of how Olsen, with his size and just his size alone, 
him splitting the linebackers and running straight up the seam, like that spot on the field, if he would so Ian Thomas versus him is only six three. Olsen is six five, six six. I don't know if you necessarily see Ian Thomas make that same exact catch because that is sheer wingspan and coming down with it over that safety. I don't right because that should have been intercepted. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you look. Cam is targeting a specific spot in that end zone right there. So as Olsen breaks, he splits the the middle of the two. I think it's two linebackers from looking at this clip, and he's looking at that spot specifically right below the safety and whipping that in there. And I don't know if that's that's probably an incompletion or an interception on a guy that is smaller. So how can Greg Olson retain his value this year? This is a perfect clip for it. His size and remaining athleticism that he has, sheer in the red zone, will allow that. And I don't necessarily know that that's going to be a – if, say, Greg Olson goes down in the year – Ian Thomas is not going to be a one-for-one comparison in the red zone as as you can't just shoe him into that Greg Olson role. They'd have to split Ian Thomas, move him into the slot, use him in different ways. Now, whether that's in the flat because of his athleticism, whether that's using him on an out route or, or stacking him you know, in the slot off, uh, off the line, but does he have the size to be able to be this type of red zone weapon? I don't think so. So I think that the role that Olsen plays for this offense is different than every other player they have because DJ Moore is not a red zone weapon. You can use McCaffrey, but is he particularly a guy that's going to outbody somebody? No. Is Curtis Samuel that guy? No. So the role that Greg Olsen plays for this offense is unlike any other player that they have on the depth chart. Now, they used to have a comparable player in Devin Funches, Mm-hmm. that they could use in that manner, but now Funchess is gone. So if Olsen goes down, this offense would have to change. It'd have to change significantly. You don't have any size outside of Olsen. You, yep. you included that Ian Thomas was kind of small, and I'm glad you mentioned he's not a one-for-one swap because he's a very talented player, but you even see in all or nothing a little bit of the clips of why it's so difficult for a rookie tight end to produce in the first year because it's almost impossible to play at full speed for them. They have they have two positions to learn at an NFL level. They've only got a couple months to do it. it. It doesn't make much sense for rookies to produce. The reason Evan Ingram produced is because all he had to do is run routes that he knew how to run and catch the ball, which he's really good at. So that's why he produced so well in his first year. He wasn't asked to do anything except for be athletic, pretty much be a wide receiver in his first year. And Ian Thomas was asked to be Greg Olson in his first year. So, hey, welcome to the league. Go be a Hall of Famer. And, um, I think the team really likes Ian Thomas, just judging solely based off the show that I'm watching currently. I think that they really like him, and I think that they understood that that's huge shoes to fill. And uh, there's no way I, – I like getting Ian Thomas cheap next year, but if Greg Olson goes down, which would not be surprising whatsoever, I find it very difficult to believe that Ian Thomas does anything special. I, I really think that the offense changes, like you mentioned. Yep, I'm hoping that's the I'm hoping that's the case because it seems like with all of the because the news right now is really around Cam Newton and his shoulder. So if we can continue to see like this, not necessarily this level of production, 
but at least he's able to still rely on his, I guess, traditional targets, his traditional weapons, and Greg Olson and Christian McCaffrey in the way that he's done in the past. I mean, that still propels, I mean, Cam Newton back into that QB1 range. And so I don't think there's too many other folks, like as you were mentioning, Derek, that can do the things that Olsen does. So we kind of we need him to stay healthy. We, and that's where and that's where Greg Olsen becomes like that valuable tight end, even though he I mean, how old is that guy? I forget how old he is now, actually. Thirty four. Thirty four. OK. I think he's yeah. four. Yeah. So even at that age, I mean, he can still produce the way that we need him to and the way that I mean, obviously, it's the way that the Panthers need him to. Right. No, absolutely, and and we're talking about his role in this offense. So, just playing this this narrative through, if Greg Olson would go down, at least forecasting, what could you see for the Panthers? I think that you would see them spread the offense a little bit more. You'd see Ian Thomas more in the slot. I think that this is still an offense that could be very successful, but the manner in which they would be able to and have to operate would be different. Yeah, I think so too. I, I'm again hoping that that's not the case, but it seems like with foot injury, similar foot injuries in the past, it takes a little while for them to get over. We saw it if with they Des can. Bryant. Yeah, if they can, we saw it with Des Bryant. So it seems like R.I.P. Sammy Watkins. Season. Yes, yeah, Sammy Watkins and the like. So it seems like that is something that we will have to monitor throughout the season. But the hope is that Olsen's able to get over it before he winds up taking some sort of TV job and hopefully does a better job than Jason Witten. <laughs> but uh, with that being said, I mean, Derek, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through your understanding of the tight end position. Um, my hope is, again, with this entire positional series, that folks get a better idea for how they can take the knowledge of the position as a whole and applying it to your own roster so that you can kind of plug the leaks and gaps within your knowledge of your entire roster and then make the moves that you need in order to really create a dynasty that is almost unstoppable within your league. I think the phrase, I mean, you want to make teams that make other people like have not have fun in your league because your team is so stacked. I mean, that's that's what you're trying to build, and that's hopefully the knowledge that we're providing. But before we get, we get you on out of here, Derek, I mean, what other work do you have? I know you've been working crazy like a madman with all the sites that you're writing for nowadays. So, I mean... The floor is yours in order to tell the folks what you've got coming before, during the off-season, and also in-season as well, man. Uh, thank you all for having me again. It's always a pleasure to sit down with you all. I love doing these series with Positional, and I love what you all got going on with the Owner's Manual, man. It, it is one of the – every time that somebody hits me up, slides up into those DMs, and they're like, hey, look, I just got into Dynasty. I'm following you with some good resources. I always point them y'all's direction because the ability for a brand-new Dynasty player – to be able to consume this content and just the concise nature of it and be able to walk away from all of these episodes and feel like, like, man, I really got an edge on this and I really got a handle on what I need to do, not only for my team, but as far as positional wise, it's, it's sharp content, man. I love absolutely digging into all the stuff that y'all are putting out. So thank y'all again for having me, uh, this season, man, I got all kinds of stuff going on. Um, so uh, my partner in crime, like I was talking about, uh, myself and Aton Mosey just started a podcast called Triple T Pod. Follow us over there on Twitter. We are on iTunes and stuff. We've got some, uh, some good people in the industry coming on the show for the next few weeks. We uh, usually put out shows every Friday, so take a look out for that. Putting out Dynasty content, previewing some season, uh, 
some redraft players over at Fantasy Data, and I'm doing a video series for the Quant Edge right now. We're coming out with two to three videos per week, and some of these are trending news. Some of these are players uh, really diving into all of the amazing weapons that, uh, weapon. I say weapons, but tools that we have over at the Quant Edge that can really give you an edge not only in Dynasty but season-long DFS all of those things are over there. And right now, before they go back behind the paywall, go check it out. Sign up for a free to, free account. Get your full NFL pass for this season. Use the promo code DBRO, TQE. And, yeah, man, it, I've got all kinds of stuff in the works. And it is a blast because, look, football is back in training camps. It is going to be week one before we know it, guys. I can't believe the summer has already passed us by. And now we're getting, I mean, we've only got, we've got preseason work, uh, preseason probably within the next few weeks. So it's just, it's wild to think that we're already back into football mode. But Adam, before we get on out of here, do we have anything else for the folks? Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Derek. And I was a TQE user for DFS last year. It's almost essential, especially to see um, matchups and um, positional percentages and matchups is almost an essential tool So fantastic site you guys have over there well and we got more stuff coming out too man they've got a pace tool and we've done all kinds of crazy stuff with the wide receiver cornerback tool it's some crazy shit we got rolling out this year well i'll Love be it. subscribing and uh hopefully you all subscribe to our show uh like rate review follow us on twitter at dynasty manual follow me at apwilde and check us out on the dlf mailbag show we're revamping it a little after we did some trial runs and uh, we'll be back shortly Absolutely. And of course, if you wanted to actually meet both of us, Adam, myself, uh, Dwight and Andrew from the Devi Owners Manual, we'll all be meeting up at the Midwest Fantasy Expo that's going to be held up in Canton. So Bob Lung that we had on for the running back part of the positional series, he is the organizer and he's putting all that stuff together. And uh, we have we'll we'll have a booth for the owner's manual. So if you happen to be there. Uh, if you want to get tickets, sign up with our promo code automatic when you go to purchase your tickets for the uh, for the expo. And then come find us. Come check us out. I know there are going to be plenty of other folks. I know that uh, Bob Harris from Football Diehards, he just signed on in order to show up. Folks from Roto, uh, from Rotoviz. Um, there, there's going to be so many other folks there. I mean, it's just I think it's going to be fun to, in order to get the fantasy community or some folks from the fantasy community together uh, for for that day. So it's going to be on August 18th up in Canton. So come check us out if you're going to be in the area. But for Derek, for Adam, I'm Chris. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Allen FFWX. We thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. For the fantasy championship Dynasty. Hit the books, kid Read this pamphlet called the Dynasty Owner's Manual It's automatic Dynasty It's automatic Owner's Manual It's automatic Dynasty It's automatic